Empower Radio presents Out of the Fog. Join intuitive guide and spiritual teacher Karen Hager for lively, positive conversation with lightworkers, healers, and dynamic wisdom keepers. Get ready for inspiration and connection. This is Out of the Fog on Empower Radio. Here's your host, Karen Hager. Hello and welcome to Out of the Fog. I'm Karen Hager. Each week at this time, we gather for spiritual conversation and enlightening guests, and I'm glad you're here. One in seven Americans will experience a problem with alcohol or other drug misuse in their lifetimes. My guest today is Scott Pilara. He's the author of Drug Rehab, Five Things You Absolutely Need to Know Before You Go, and he's here to share his insider knowledge of the residential treatment industry and his views on effective tools for achieving sobriety. Are you ready to meet him? Scott Pilara has more than 10 years in-depth experience in the substance abuse treatment industry. He's worked as a tech, life coach, and as a sober companion at a residential treatment center. Scott developed a concierge detox program catering to executives. He's been the director of operations for a subacute residential detox facility, and he owned and operated a sober living facility in Malibu, California. He's the founder of The Power of Choice, the first concierge substance abuse treatment service in the U.S. His new book is Drug Rehab, the five things you absolutely need to know before you go, and you can find out more about Scott and his work at thepowerofchoice.com. Scott, welcome to Out of the Fog. Thanks for having me, Karen. I'm glad you're here. That, that, those figures are kind of startling. One in seven Americans will experience a problem with alcohol or other drug misuse in their lifetime. We're hearing a lot today about how there's an addiction epidemic going on. What do you mm-hmm. think about that? I think it's been a problem that's been uh, picking up speed for quite some time now. And um, I think if you factor in process addictions on top of that, um, if you're talking about gambling, sex addiction, technology addiction, I think that num- those numbers are far greater. Um, and I would suspect that you're probably looking at maybe one in two as some sort of addiction concern. Um, but I think it speaks to sort of where we're at today as, as a society. Um, there are a lot of factors that drive addiction and uh, an addicted state of consciousness. And um, the way that we treat it in residential settings has become highly ineffective, um, primarily because of the managed care mandate that residential treatment now falls under. Um, so we've, uh, we've got some work cut out ahead of us to really uh, start healing this problem and, and working with it effectively. What is it that you think is driving this? Because it, it seems to be growing exponentially, and, and that seems to be happening very quickly over mm-hmm. time. What, what is feeding this? Um, I think there's a lot of things. Um, I think it's the foods that we eat, um, sugar, GMO foods. Um, I think it's the fact that we push more medication now than ever before. Um, the messaging that we receive through the media um, you know, it begins with our education, educational system. Um, you know, there's a lot of different factors. And, and I think overall you have to look at addiction as a manifestation of, um, of unhappiness. And our souls are, have a tendency to be out of alignment when we fall into these addicted, um, these, these addicted states. And, and, um, 
there are a lot of environmental factors that drive addiction. And, and when you get to the point of substance abuse, you're, it's really you're just working with, with symptoms. Um, they're, just, they're just symptoms of greater problems at that point. So, yeah, we, again, we have a lot of work we have to do, and I think it begins with um, you know, reforming our educational system, teaching children how to think, uh, not what to think, um, teaching them to be embodied. I think practicing tools like yoga and meditation um, in early adolescence could be extremely powerful at sort of stemming uh, addiction later on in life. And if we give children tools to learn how to regulate their emotions effectively um, and get them away from screens, iPads and iPhones, and get them outside and interacting with each other, um, playing sports, um, you know, and eating clean, healthy food, I think those are all steps that we can take to, you know, really start working with this issue. And now we're just sort of in a triage state where we're just doing damage control. Um, residential treatment is, is sort of, you know, your last hope for a lot of people uh, when they get to that condition. And uh, what's going on now typically is that people will enter treatment to try and get off their illicit drugs um, or prescription pills, and then they'll be put on other forms of drugs. So we're not really doing much to transmute addiction. We're just really working on symptom management. So you're saying you could transfer the addiction from one thing to another, but be kind of shot out at the end of residential treatment center, the residential treatment, like you're all better. Yeah. Yeah. That's typically what's happening, especially in the cases of opioid addiction. So, um, to be clear, we have a prescription opioid epidemic. We don't have as much of a heroin epidemic because there are three times as many people that are hooked on prescription opioids as there are heroin. So people that are on, let's say, Oxycontin and are abusing Oxycontin will enter treatment, and they'll typically put, be put on um, other forms of prescription opioids, like buprenorphine, um, naltrexone, um, which you know, common names would be Suboxone and Subutex. And um, so again, you're just you're just you're just substituting one form of opioid for another. You have said that the treatment industry commonly misleads the public. That sometimes the effectiveness of the programs that are offered are misrepresented because it's a big it's a big business. Can you say more about that? Because if we're looking at what do we need to know before we go to yeah. result treat, I, I'd like to know that. Before I go, yeah, I mean, there's a there's really a hard sell that goes on when you call a lot of these facilities. Um, you're dealing with salesmen who are trying to, you know, it's no it's no different than going to a car lot, um, really. And but unfortunately, they're profiting off of you know human suffering, which is just catastrophic um, and heartbreaking. Um, but there are in the book, I, I sort of highlight some questions that people should should be asking during the discovery process of trying to find effective forms of treatment, which treatment center they should go to. Um, because treatment centers, they can, they can pretty much advertise anything they want to advertise. They can say whatever they want to say to try and get you in, because once you're in, then you're there. And then they're billing your insurance. So um, there's a lot of misinformation that, that treatment centers advertise. Um, primarily one of them is, is our success rates. There's a lot of sort of hidden information behind those numbers. And, um, you know, 
treatment centers that advertise high success rates typically don't show how they get those numbers or what the calculations behind those numbers. Um, and I, I've worked, I've worked actually at a place, um, and I hate to admit it, but they advertised that they were, you know, in the beach in Malibu and they were, you know, 20 miles away. Um, but they were marketing towards people that lived in the Midwest that really didn't know any better. So by the time they got out here, they were, you know, right on the uh, fringe of going through withdrawal, um, needed to get, needed to be someplace, needed to be on medication to sort of curb the withdrawal symptoms. And it wasn't until, you know, two or three days later, these people would start asking, hey, where's the beach? <laughs> you know, um, you know, they, they'd, mis- they'd misrepresent what type of therapies they offered. Um, other types of clinical programming that, you know, that were non-existent that they put on the website to try and sort of present the illusion that this facility was offering a higher standard of care than they actually did. When, when we get to that place where we're looking for a treatment center, whether it's for us or if it's for someone we love, how can we not get taken to the cleaners? Because when you get to that place, there's a high there's a lot of emotion involved. Sure. You don't want to make a mistake. There's a lot of money involved. How can we find the, how do we find the best option? Well, it's really why I wrote this book. It was just it, because it serves as a guide to help people understand what questions they should be asking, what they should look for, uh, what they should avoid. Um, because there, as of right now, there are something like over 14,000 licensed uh, behavioral health facilities nationwide. I mean, it's and people typically will go to the internet first to, you know, to start doing their research, and I think it just really comes down to using one's intuition when you're speaking with these people, um, really pressing your attention into your own emotion, your own emotions. What's coming up when you're speaking with these people? Does it feel like this is a hard sell? Um, I think. Speaking to clinical staff, they're asking to speak to the clinical director, um, asking to speak to owners. Um, what sort of impressions are is one getting after speaking with these people? Um, because it's it can be dangerous. I mean, uh, I think it was probably four months ago, five months ago now, that uh, there was an individual in Florida that was sentenced to close to 30 years in prison. He was a treatment center owner. Uh, he was a former felon. He opened up a facility under his wife's name because as a felon, you're not allowed to own a licensed treatment facility. Um, he was committing insurance fraud. He was furnishing clients with narcotics. Um, and in one case, or a couple cases actually, he was, he was prostituting a number of his patients. Um, I mean, and this is not a one-off. There's another uh, incident of similar to this that occurred out here in California um, around the same time frame. So, um, you know, it's, it's kind of a scary world out there now because the entire industry is unregulated. Mm. So, again, that's kind of why I wrote this book because there just wasn't anything out there that existed to sort of help people navigate these waters. And while reg- maybe regulation would be helpful, I get the feeling from reading what you've written that that you are looking at creating a model that, doesn't just treat the symptoms, but starts to then treat that underlying uh, disconnect mm-hmm. that that leads to the behavior. So regulation may be helpful, but even with regulation, would these be effective ways of treating? 
Um, I mean, under our current system, under under the current current mm-hmm. model, yeah. um, it, it doesn't work for the masses. It doesn't work for. It, it was. Let's put it this way: it works less than it does more. Um, I would say relapse rates for opioid addicts are somewhere in the ninety percent range. I mean, that's just as a one industry professional talking to another. Um, it, it again, it's just, this is this system itself is designed to manage symptoms and does not work to transmute the underlying drivers of addiction. Now, with that being said, there are some amazing facilities out there, um, but unfortunately, they're just hard to find, and because they sort of just fall into the murky waters of all the other bad players. Um, there needs to be some sort of accountability board that starts holding these places um, accountable to to what they're offering. And they have to be able to show that that what they, what they do provide works. Um, because as it stands right now, everybody that has health insurance is subsidizing this industry and failed treatment. Um, and, you know, insurance companies now, because it's a managed care world, are dictating what forms of, re- of, of therapy they're willing to reimburse. And, um, you know, they're big on pushing pharmaceutical drugs. So I think if, if people are looking, I think um, abstinence-based programs are, are one way to go. Um, I'd say after leaving detox, you go detox and then go to an abstinence-based treatment program that does not push medications. Um, I think that could be that could be helpful for a lot, for many people. Um, but again, there's kind of a push towards a medicated world right now, and um, the big push in treatment, residential treatment, is medication-assisted therapy or treatment, where you're being put on medications while undergoing. Um, various forms of behavioral therapy. So it's sort of a medication first, therapy second approach right now. And uh, so a, lot of these, a lot of these prescription opioids that people are being put on are harder to get off of than you know, illicit narcotics. Mm-hmm. So, um, and these are things that just people should be aware of before entering treatment. It's like, what is the ultimate goal? And do you want to leave treatment on medication? Do you want to leave treatment off medication? Um, do you want to go to a 12-step program? Uh, 12-step programs typically have really high relapse rates, and um, it's sort of an antiquated form of treatment. So there are there are new there are new forms of treatment that are showing signs of effectiveness. Um, you know, pe- places that really harbor home mindfulness, uh, meditation, um, and holistic. Holistic forms of healing are, I think, are really the, you know, ultimately the ways to go when you're working with um, addiction. I'm talking with Scott Pilara. His new book is Drug Rehab, The Five Things You Absolutely Need to Know Before You Go. And you can find out more about Scott and his work at thepowerofchoice.com. So, Scott, when you talk about those treatment, those treatment modalities that are effective, say more about that. It's, it's hard because sometimes... I would imagine there are clients coming in who've got a dual diagnosis. So there is addiction, but there's also mental illness going on. Mm-hmm. There may be a um, kind of off to the side chronic issues in the physical body because of the years of abuse through the drug, right? It's difficult for the system. What are some things that, that can help the whole body, mind, and spirit instead of just kind of bringing people in, taking their money, and then putting them back out? Right. Um, 
for clients that I work with um, that do present with dual diagnosis, I work with a holistic psychiatrist, um, one that uses food and supplements, whole food supplements as uh, forms of medicine versus versus drugs. Um, I think taking a mindful-based approach to treatment, working mind, body, spirit, uh, mentally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually sort of as one. And uh, we use forms of acupuncture called esoteric acupuncture. It's a little different than traditional forms of Chinese medicine. Um, we also incorporate energy medicine practitioners as well. because it, You can't transmute addiction unless you're dealing with the energetic bodies um, as well as the, you know, the physical body, mental body, and emotional bodies. Um, you know, what's tough, too, in residential treatment is that it's sort of a one-size-fits-all model. You know, everyone kind of receives the same treatment, but we all have different paths, and we all um, are headed in different directions, and, you know, everybody responds to, different, to information differently. So I think it comes down to really, you know, at some point developing a system where you're just working with one, two, maybe three clients at a time as opposed to some of these facilities. And again, we have an epidemic right now, so there's there's shortages of beds. Um, it was this sort of like a triage state right now as far as addiction goes. Um, but I think at some point down the road, we need to start look, re- revisiting this model, um, this assembly line approach to working with addiction and going back to working you know, with just one person at a time, two people at a time, small groups. Um, I think if you get some behavioral health professionals and uh, mental health professionals and healers in general, they can build their own teams within their communities and put together effective treatment programs um, in settings that mirror the ones that the clients will be returning to eventually. Um, I think that will give them a better chance of carving out uh, a sober life for themselves post-treatment. Because another one of the shortcomings of residential treatment is that the milieu is just does not reflect the one that they will be returning to when they return home. So um, there's just a lot that really doesn't work with our current system, unfortunately. And um, I think it's time to really start having some intelligent conversations as to how to fix this. Uh, fix the you know the problem of treating addiction because obviously everyone knows that we have a huge addiction problem, right. but not a lot of people are paying attention to the fact that the almost greater problem is that we don't know how to treat it effectively. Well, and there's a generational aspect to it too. If I um, am from a family where the parents maybe have gone in and out of treatment and have relapsed, mm-hmm. and then right that sometimes there's models of behavior for the kids or genetic predisposition mm-hmm. or who knows what it is, but it turns into a generational problem. And we're seeing yeah. now whole kind of whole towns going under yeah. as a result yeah. of this. Yeah, and I think in a lot of these areas, too, where you're seeing these towns, it's, um, you look what's going on with, you know, like West Virginia, for example. Um, you know, for so many years, they had coal mining to fall back on and provide jobs. And, and uh, when you take people's sort of life purpose away, what do you fill the void with? And unfortunately, the void's been filled with substance abuse, sort of dulling the emotional pain that and suffering that so many people are, are falling under now um, because the idea of a happy life and the message that we receive really is not attainable for the masses. And 
without without purpose, without meaning in one's life, and without a glimpse of opportunity, this is a really hard problem to to, to work with. And I know we've got just a couple minutes left, but I'd love for you to tell listeners what they can find at your website, thepowerofchoice.com, and I'd love to hear about the concierge treatment program that, that you've developed. Yeah, so what we're doing now, um, my treatment team and I got together a few years ago and we started kicking around the idea of opening up uh, our program to to the masses, to so many people that aren't feeling well, that are dealing with sort of a mental health concern or they're just stressed out, anxious, they just don't feel good physically. So we started hosting holistic retreats and we take people on retreat, we sort of provide a tra- transformational experiences where we work with, um, when we teach people, you know, how to use food as medicine, um, the power of meditation, the power of therapeutic yoga, um, and various yogic techniques, um, you know, introducing you know, esoteric acupuncture to individuals. And these retreats are just an extension of sort of the concierge addiction approach that I developed uh, years and years ago. Um, I saw coming out of working at a really exclusive residential treatment facility that offered a lot of individual therapy and then sort of co-creating a concierge detox program with the former medical director of that facility, I saw that if you could combine sort of the therapeutic services and modalities of, you know, of, a, of a higher-end treatment facility um, with more of a one-to-one sort of concierge approach where it's completely customized for that individual um, where the individual is also living in, a, in an environment that is reflective of the one that they're going to be returning to, uh, utilizing sober companions um, as a primary tool to sort of help the client um, kind of get used to creating a uh, what would be what would starts out as periods of abstinence um, and then work working towards attaining state of sobriety, um, and just really providing tangible tools and strategies, utilizing a step-down approach, um, offering sort of more services up front, more therapeutic services up front, and then sort of tapering off as the client progresses, and then using sober companions to help them reintegrate back into their life um, slowly. And, you know, you could have a really... Um, you know, a really different approach to working with addiction. And, you know, unfortunately, this isn't available to the masses. Um, it's cost prohibitive for many. And uh, we only typically work with one, maybe two clients at a time. But this model can be replicated. I mean, there, other people can do this, and they can offer this type of service in the area in which they live if they just got together with, uh, you know, different healers, different therapists, different doctors, and sort of structured teams, um, find, you know, to, and then also finding residential options to put, to put clients in. Um, you know, I think this, this could be sort of a system of, of treating addiction that this country really needs right now. Scott, thank you so much for being on the show. Your website is thepowerofchoice.com. Is that the best way for listeners to get in touch with you? Yeah, they can reach me at thepowerofchoice.com. Um, they can also reach me at scottpolara.com. That's S-C-O-T-T, P as in Peter, I-L, 
A-R-A.com. And uh, lastly, there's uh, the book. It's uh, drugrehabbook.com. Wonderful. Okay. Um, thank you very much for being on the, on the program. I really appreciate what you have to share, and it brings some light into what is kind of a, a dark situation we've got going on right now. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me, Karen. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you, Scott, very much. That is Scott Pilara. His new book is Drug Rehab, The Five Things You Absolutely Need to Know Before You Go. You can find out more about Scott and his work at thepowerofchoice.com. You can also check out drugrehabbook.com. And of course, you can always find out more about what's going on in my world. You can book a private session with me, find out about upcoming classes and events, all at karenhager.com. And if you believe, as I do, that when we put our collective intention toward peace, when we join with others who share that intention, that everything changes. If you believe that in the power of collective intention, I invite you to join me on the first Sunday of every month for Opening the Peaceful Heart, A Call for Love. That's a free 15-minute guided meditation. You can join a circle of people from all over the world. We come together once a month just to put our attention on peace, peace in our hearts, and peace in the world. Details about that are at openpeacefulheart.com. And thank you for listening today. Together we are spreading a little more light in the world, and a little more light is always a good thing. Until next time, I'm wishing you peace. Peace.